Good morning. I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on. And today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 15 and 16. So, Revelation 15 and 16. Now, if you're not sure how to locate Revelation, uh, I've got some instructions on the screen behind me. Uh, but just suffice it to say, Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. So, if you go to the end, you're, you're going to hit Revelation. Um, but we are also in the Bible app, so if you want to follow along with us, if you've got that downloaded on your device, uh, you can pull that up and follow the instructions. Uh, you do need to, when you pull up that, uh, the, you find us there, you do have to locate us on the map. For some reason, we're not in the list there. I'm still trying to figure out why that's happening. But anyways, you can locate us there on the Bible app by going to the app and finding the pin uh, for this location. So... If you've ever been to my house, you know that I have a state-of-the-art alarm system, security system. Uh, This system is mobile. It alerts me when anybody is walking by the house or approaching the house, especially if there is a cat or a dog involved. My alarm system goes off. Uh, And so I can tell you when someone's coming to the house, probably a couple of minutes, five minutes before they ever approach the door. My system alerts me when their car pulls up. I know when packages are coming. I know when somebody's walking by. I know when the stray cat in my neighborhood walks by my house. I mentioned it's mobile. It's 85 pounds, covered in hair. Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. So many years ago, I think, it's, I think it's seven years ago now, we went to the shelter and took a dog named Pax. We didn't give him that name. He already had it. But big dog. At the time, he was about 65 pounds. He stands about this tall. And we've got other dogs too, but this one's my loud one. Uh, and reason being, he went in, in and out of the shelter most of his early life. Uh, I mentioned when we got him, he was about 65 pounds, and in the first month, he gained 20 pounds just at our house because he hadn't been getting the nutrition and the food because he was living in a shelter. And so this dog is our family, but it wasn't always that way. It took a long time for him to warm up to me. He loved Jana and Knox, my wife and my son. He loved them right out the gate. But it took about a month for him to get used to me, where where he was comfortable with me. And who knows why that is. But if you come to my house and Pax is inside the house, you know, some of you have been to my house, you know that he's going to bark at you and he's going to back away and he's going to be aggressive until he gets some kind of indication that he can trust you. And those indications usually are like me or Jana will walk you over to Pax and, and calm him down. Or you just hang around long enough and he gets used to you. But the fact of the matter is, is he's not very trusting. Somebody walks by the house, he's going to go off. Somebody walks in my house that doesn't belong to the family, he's going to go off. If you've ever been over there, we have a dog run off to the side of our house. And there's a window uh, on that dog run that looks into our front room, the room you walk into when you come into my house. And if you walk in, 
He's outside. He's going to be looking through that window, barking at you, even if I'm shaking your hand or giving you a hug. He doesn't care. He still won't trust you because it takes a while to earn his trust. Today's passage, we're going to kind of look at the ways that we place trust in things that we really shouldn't be. You see, we too many times are too trusting of things that God tells us to avoid. And Revelation 15 and 16 are going to kind of pull some ideas that we've been studying. It's going to pull that together. And we're going to look at what Revelation says we should be trusting. So take your Bibles, turn to Revelation 15. Now, Revelation 15 starts out the last of the judgments that we've been studying about. So, so we've seen the seals. Remember in Revelation 6, God has this seal in his right hand and Jesus takes it from his hand and he begins breaking the seals open so he can open the scroll. And every time he breaks a seal open, some judgment comes out. And I'm going to recap these later in the message because all of this is going to be pulled together in today's chapters. And then you move forward a little bit and there are trumpets that are blown by the angels. And every time a trumpet is blown, God's judgment is passed on something that has pulled us away from God. And now in chapter 15, we see the last of these seven judgments, these series of seven judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and lastly today we're going to look at the bowls. Now, let me just tell you, these are not like bowls that you pick up out of your cabinet. Uh, They're going to be filled up. We're going to read a little bit about this. They're going to be filled up and then they're going to be poured out onto the earth in different ways. These bowls were special ritualistic bowls that they used in temples. In the temple of God, they had bowls that they used to burn incense and to contain oil and things like that. And so these are specialized bowls. They're ritualistic bowls. So look with me in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. So basically what's going to happen in chapter 15 is these are introduced, and then we find out that they sing this song. All the people in heaven, all the the creatures in heaven, they sing this song about God's glory. So look with me in verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So they sing this praise song to God, and we find out that in the pouring out of these seven bowls, the very end of this is the very end of Revelation. Now, we're going to recap some of what takes place as we finish up Revelation. But what happens here with the seven bowls is it takes us all the way to the very end of what happens with Revelation. And then the remaining chapters up to that is going to recap some of the things that we've seen here in chapters 15 and 16. But I want you to notice something here. And this is going to be a continuous theme for the next couple of weeks as we wrap up this study in the book of Revelation who wins? 
God. But I said that wrong. It's not who wins, but who has won. Because God's already won the victory, hasn't he? The moment Jesus rose out of that grave, defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating death, he won. And the end of Revelation is just him finishing up the victory. And so so that's where we're going with the book of Revelation is we're going to see the very end of the judgments that God pours out on those things that pull us away from Him. And He is going to finally say, okay, now I'm going to finish my victory. Because when Jesus rose from the grave, He declared victory. He defeated Satan. But He gave Satan a little leeway. Remember a couple weeks ago I mentioned that Satan now is like a chained lion. He's running around, trying to take down anybody he can, but he is chained. He's already been defeated. And he's a sore loser. And so he's trying to take down as many of God's creations as he possibly can before God's final victory ends him altogether. And so that's what we're seeing here in chapter 15. God won. God wins. Now, that leads me to today's big idea. I I like to have a big idea, a main thing that I want you to go home with. And the big idea today is simply this, trust God. Trust God. Now, you may be saying to yourself, wait, wasn't that the big idea like four weeks ago? Yeah, it was. Because I want you to please hear me clearly on this. The book of Revelation is not designed to give us a timetable about how the end is going to take place. It gives us some clues on that, but it's left very mysterious for a purpose, for a reason. We're not supposed to be able to figure out all the details. So why did God give us revelation? He gave us revelation so that we could trust Him, and in that trust, we could have hope. You see, things in the world are going to get pretty nasty. So let's look at chapter 16 to see what I'm talking about. Look with me in verse 1. And we're going to walk through most of 16 uh, this morning, so keep your Bibles open here. But chapter 16, starting in verse 1, it says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, remember there's seven angels that John sees and they've got seven plagues, telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So, Keep in mind, remember, these are seven angels. They're standing in God's heavenly temple, and they've got seven bowls of plague, of judgment, in their hands. And now God says, okay, now pour your bowls out. Look with me in verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came up upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So remember, Those who do not follow God are bearing some kind of mark, whether that's a physical, literal mark, or whether it's just the spiritual mark of obeying and worshiping something other than God. Revelation's not completely clear about that. But 
When it comes down to the end times, there are only two sides to this. You will bear the mark of the followers of Christ that we saw in chapter 7 and 8, or you will bear the mark of the beast that follows Satan. And there will be no in-between. There will be no neutral ground. You'll worship one or the other. And it'll be a time of difficulty for those who worship Jesus. But the fact of the matter remains that the bowl is being poured out on the earth, and those who are struggling through this plague are those that don't follow Jesus. So let's look at verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl onto the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Okay, so now this next angel has poured his bowl into the sea. Look with me in verse 4. The third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Now, where have we heard blood turned into water? If you go back into the book of Exodus, chapters like 7 through 12, 7 through 13, we see the plagues of Egypt. And one of the plagues of Egypt is that the Nile rivers turned to blood. Keep that in mind. We're coming back to that idea. Look with me now in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. Now, we should be able, as Arizonans, this should be particularly relevant, right? We're, we're practically living the fourth plague. So this won't be a big deal to us as Arizonans, right? No, I'm kidding. But in reality, something happens and the sun's intensity is greatened. It's intensified. It's, it's made larger and greater. Now look with me in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, I want you to notice something here. Euphrates is a river that is mentioned often throughout the Old Testament. It was a river that separated Babylon from the rest of the western, or the, yeah, the western part all the way to Israel. Uh, Euphrates was one of the most mentioned rivers in the Old Testament. It was a great river. The Babylonian Empire used it as a dividing line. And so the Euphrates River is going to be dried up, but the purpose of it drying up is so that the armies of the nations can travel towards the nation of Israel. Now I'm going to explain it. We're, we're getting into the nerdy, deep part of Revelation now. you you got to stick with me. All right, now... It dries up so that the kings of the east can gather and march against God and his people and his land. Now, the kings of the east is a reference uh, to the kings of Babylon, the Babylonian empire. If you were a Jewish person and you heard the people of the east or the king of the east or the kingdom of the east, you would immediately think of Babylon. Now, here's the thing. Babylon in the Old Testament was the symbol, the representative of all the nations that were opposed to God's will. And so when you see in the Old Testament, outside of the physical reference to Babylon itself, 
When you see prophetic pointings to Babylon, many times those pointings are not specifically to Babylon, but to all the nations that are opposed to God. And that's especially true here in the book of Revelation. So the kings of the east are all of the kingdoms, all the governments that are opposed to God and His will. Now, here's the thing, the hard part for us. According to the way this was written, uh, if, if you don't know, Revelation was written in Greek. And it uses a special type of literature called apocalyptic literature. We, we talked about that on the, the first uh, message of this series. The way this is written, it indicates that all nations will be opposed to God. We're not talking about a few nations in the Middle East. We're talking about every government of the world at some point will be opposed to the followers of Christ and will persecute those who follow Him. So don't be deceived. Don't, don't lean in too heavily in trusting something that God tells you not to trust. Please hear me. Even the country we live in, according to Revelation, even this country will turn against the followers of Jesus. We cannot place our trust in anything other than God Himself. And that's a hard thing to hear. I love my country. I am a proud American. But America is not the kingdom of God. It's a great nation. And it's got great roots and a great history. It's got some good and some bad. But the truth of the matter is, is this country is already showing signs of turning further and further away from God, isn't it? And the fact of the matter remains is the way Revelation, the way John words what's found here is that this is not just a handful of nations. This is every government of the world will turn against the followers of Jesus. We cannot place our trust in anything other than God. Remember the big idea today. Trust what? Trust who? Trust God. He is quite literally, if you believe what Revelation says, He is quite literally the only thing in the universe that we can confidently trust. Everything else is going to betray us. Everything else is going to try and squash, try to to attack what God is doing. Again, hard to hear, but that's what Revelation says. We're going to come back to this idea here in just a moment. Now look with me in verse 16. It says this, And they assembled them, talking about the armies of the kingdom of the east. So these are the armies of the nations that are going to come against God's people. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, are you ready to geek out with me? Let's look at this for a second. Because this is an incredibly misunderstood concept in the book of Revelation. So at the top, you see the Greek word, harmageddon. That's what it looks like in the Greek language. You see that little, looks like an apostrophe? That's an actual letter in Greek, and it creates the sound on the beginning of a word. So this is not armageddon, this is harmageddon in the Greek. That's the way it's pronounced. Now, when you read Har Mogedon, what John has done is he has taken a Hebrew word and he has assigned Greek letters to that Hebrew word to give it a Greek name, to give it a Greek set of letters. 
We do the same thing in our English. Uh, For example, the word apostle. The, The word apostle is not an English word. Apostle is a Greek word, apostolos, that we've taken and assigned English letters to and given it a uniquely English meaning. So what does har magedon mean? What can it mean? Well, there are two possibilities here, as you can see on the screen. The first is what's kind of commonly been taught for the last 150 to 200 years. It's been particularly popular uh, with dispensationalism. And you go look that up on Google later today. I will explain a few of these here in a couple weeks. But it's especially popular with those that believe in dispensationalism. And it's this idea that the Greek means har magidon, magida. Now, har is the word in Hebrew for mountain. So it's Mount Megiddo is what it could be. That's the first possibility. Megiddo is a physical place in the nation of Israel. If you've ever been to Israel, in northern Israel, just north of Samaria, there is a massive plain called Megiddo. I've been there. It goes as far as the eye can see. You can see the mountain that Jerusalem sits on from this valley, from this plain. It's so flat. There's not a single mountain in Megiddo. There is a small hill, but the hill is where a town was, and dirt over 10 decades and centuries, dirt covered up the town, and it became this little hill. So it's not a mountain, it's, that's called a tell, a T-E-L, uh, archaeology, uh, you go look that up. So when it says Mount Megiddo, what is it talking about? Because Megiddo literally has zero mountains. There's not a single mountain in Megiddo. So there could be a minor issue with interpreting Harmageddon in the Greek as meaning Mount Megiddo, because there is no such thing as Mount Megiddo. So what else could it mean? Well, actually, there are two letters in the Hebrew language that can be transliterated as G sounds, as the G. So Hebrew is what's called a guttural language, where in English, we don't do this at all, but it sounds like they're hacking something up from the back of their throat. Ha, Megiddo! Ha, ha, ha! Even their G, they have two distinct G sounds, and one is the G, and one is the Kh that comes from the back of the throat. Like, it makes my voice sore just trying to say it. But they're used to it. That's the way their language is designed. So there are two Gs. So if you use the other letter, G, instead of the first one that we used in this first example, you end up with the mountain of assembly. Well, guess what the mountain of assembly is? Mount Zion. The mountain that Jerusalem sits on where the temple is located. So, let me give you an example where we see this. If you look in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, this is a a passage that is used very often for Satan's fall from glory, his fall from heaven. And it says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, the sun of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on what? The Mount of Assembly. Whoever this passage is talking about is literally saying, I will sit on the throne in the temple. Well, where, who sits on the throne in the temple? The throne in the temple is the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Old Testament, the mercy seat was where God sat when the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood to forgive the sins of all the people. So whoever this is in Isaiah 14 is saying, I'm going to sit on God's own throne on the Mount of Assembly, on Mount Zion. And it continues on, in the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you have been brought down to Sheol. Sheol is the word for the place of the dead. To the far reaches of the pit. Huh, the pit. We heard about that just a few weeks ago here in Revelation. Where, what comes out of the pit? The red dragon, Satan himself. So there are two possibilities here for what Armageddon means. Correction, Armageddon. It is either the Mount of Megiddo or it is the Mount of Assembly. And the Mount of Assembly, if there was a mountain in Megiddo, you could refer to it. But the Mount of Assembly is Mount Zion, where the city of Jerusalem and the temple sit. So I'm not saying, I want just to throw out both possibilities. I lean towards the second possibility. Because if Satan and his forces are going to attack the stronghold of God, where's the stronghold of God? It's Jerusalem. Because that's where the temple's located. That's where the worship of God on this physical earth is centralized. Here's my encouragement, and I've been saying this through this entire series. Please do delicate and deep study when it comes to studying the book of Revelation. What does the Old Testament say? What is John pointing back to in the Old Testament that helps give light, better understanding to what Revelation is trying to tell us about God's victory and His hope? So, there are two possibilities. You can do your study and figure out which one you lean toward. You can be completely unconvinced by what I've thrown out here. That stuff doesn't matter. What matters is, is that you go back to the big idea today, which is trust God. Because the kings of the east are going to bring their armies against whatever mount is being referred to here as Armageddon. But look with me in verse 17. So we've done six bowls have been poured out. Let's see what it says here. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. God wins. God is victorious. You can look at all of, try and figure out all of the nuances and the details, but the key to the book of Revelation is here in verse 17. A voice came from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. Trust God. God wins in the end. God is the one 
who is the victorious king. And we as his followers are his victorious children, adopted by the king himself. And if you're here and you've never thought about this Jesus thing, or maybe you've never placed your belief and your trust, you've never committed your life to Jesus, but you're sitting here going, I kind of see some of this in the world around me right now. I kind of see how the world's going in a a different trajectory, and, and maybe there's something to this Jesus thing. If that's you, if you want to know more about what it looks like to follow Jesus, to believe in Him, to commit your life to Him, Let me just briefly say this, Jesus loves you so much that as the Son of God, He left a perfect existence where He was worshipped by the angels so that He could come here and live a cruddy life, (laughs) dealing with heat. If you've never been to Israel, you leave Jerusalem, it's like this beautiful mountain, there are trees and everything, you leave the that area, and it turns into desolate desert. It's hot. It's miserable. Jesus experienced all of the junk that we experience as people. He was tempted in every single way that you could be tempted, and he did not sin once. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And here's why that's important. He had to live a perfect, sinless life so that he could be worthy to die for your sins. You see, your sins have condemned you. We're all sinners. Every single person ever born except Jesus is condemned in their sin. We are slaves to our sin. And if we remain shackled to sin, if we remain in that slavery, then ultimately our eternity will be in eternal punishment with our sin. But Jesus came because he loves you so much That he came and he lived and he lived a perfect sinless life and died on a cross. Shedding his life so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. And if we would believe in him, he will correct all of that slavery to sin. He will set us free from that. He will fix our brokenness because of our sin. And instead of eternal punishment, he will give us eternal life. And you can have that. And if you want to know more, if you're not convinced, I would love to answer any questions you have about that. I'll take you to coffee, lunch. I'll do a phone call, whatever it looks like. I would love to sit with you and talk with you about what it looks like and what all this means. If you're ready to make a decision, we're going to have a closing song. We'll have a time where you can come to the altar. And I'm going to ask one of our elders, Alan, to, to come and be available to you. And he'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. I'll be in the back. I'll be in the fore. You come talk to me. But here's the thing. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you've got questions, don't leave here without some kind of connection point to get those questions answered. If you're ready to make a decision for Jesus, come talk to one of us and let us walk you through what a journey with Jesus looks like. But don't leave here without doing something because God wins and we can trust him. So 
let me wrap all this together because I told you I would bring the idea of the seals and the trumpets and now the bowls. I want to bring that all together for just a moment because the bowls are the last of these judgments. And I want you to understand what's happening here. If you look through chapter 16, every bowl that's being poured onto the earth is being poured upon one of the four, what they believe to be the four elements of existence back in that day and age. Earth, air, fire, and water. So we've got the periodic table. They didn't have that back then. They saw a rock or a metal that was all earth. Anything liquid was water. Anything in the air, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, that was all air. So they categorized the entire physical world into four categories. Earth, air, fire, and water. And these six judgments that are being poured out are poured out into each of these four elements because the Greek people worshipped some of the elemental things of the earth. There are tons of philosophical writings from the great Greek philosophers talking about how there's something religious in the elements that compose the earth. And so think about it for a second. Let me bring these all together. The seven seals that we started looking at earlier this year. The seven seals pass judgment on the things that we end up placing our trust in. So what were they? Government, peace, economic or financial security, and time. So the seals pass judgment on all four of those saying, don't place your trust in any of these. Don't trust the government. Don't trust time that you've got all the time in the world. Don't trust your financial security. Don't trust that you live in a country that lives in peace because those things are temporary. And it's only the kingdom of God that's permanent. Then we come to the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets pass judgment on the things that tend to deceive us, especially in this day and age in the Roman Empire. They, did, they were judgments on the false gods of that world, of that day and age. So if you read the seven trumpets, they are judgments being passed on the gods that the Romans and the Greeks and the Syrians and the Babylonians worshipped in that day and age. And now we come to the bowls and they're passing judgments on everything that's left, the physical world. Because we don't belong to this world. We belong to the kingdom of God. We can trust God because he is our king. And his kingdom alone is eternal. It's his kingdom that will last on and on. Now if you take all of these 21 judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, if you put those all together, you're going to see Uh, uh, Jesus pointing us back to Exodus and the plagues of Exodus. Remember I told you that we were kind of going there to, to, to look for that? The plagues of Exodus are mirrored in the 21 judgments that we see here in the book of Revelation. And that's very intentional. John is trying to help us see, remember when God set the people free? What did he have to do? Because there was someone there that wouldn't let the people go. What did God have to do? He had to keep pushing Pharaoh and pushing Pharaoh and pushing Pharaoh until Pharaoh is finally done and defeated by God's power. And so we know that God 
wins. And God will take care of you. You can trust in Him. So here's the closing questions. Where's your trust? If and when things get pretty bad, okay, hypothetically speaking, if the government really starts to persecute Christians actively, throwing us in jail, taking our goods, taking our property, seizing our assets, if the government was to turn and actively persecute Christians, where would your trust be placed? Because I can tell you one thing, you can place your trust in things that you have at your house, in your bank account, but ultimately all of that can be taken away. But your faith in God cannot. Your belief in Jesus is the only thing that you can place true trust in. Where's your trust? Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have won. You have already gained the victory. The moment Jesus rose from that grave and stepped out of that tomb, he declared that he was victorious. And Lord, we thank you that we serve the victorious king. We thank you that you have adopted us as your children. We are children of the king. And we thank you. What a privilege it is. We thank you that you love us so much that you gave everything to save us, to make us your own. Lord, today we pray that you would help us to place our trust in you. Help us to recognize today that there is nothing in this world that is going to be eternal other than your kingdom. So help us to live as kingdom people rather than something else. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We give you the honor and the glory because you rightly deserve it. You alone deserve it. And we lift all of these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.